Now, we are continuing in the pastoral epistles, and we come to the third chapter, verse 8. We're going to read verses 8 through 15. So if you will turn there, and then mark the place, and we'll look at another passage first. A passage that is really important for backdrop. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8. Now, Mark it and go back to the book of Acts, the sixth chapter. Acts, that great history book of the early church. Because 1 Timothy 3 deals with the qualifications of deacons, we want to see the passage in which the first deacons came upon the scene. Acts chapter 6, beginning with verse 1. This is the word of God. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Peneus, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now, 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning with verse 8 through verse 15. This is God's word. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. This is the word of God. May the Lord add his blessing to its reading and now its exposition is our earnest prayer. Now you will remember that the purpose of the pastoral epistles written by the Apostle Paul, 1 Timothy, Titus, 2 Timothy, in order of writing, is this. He knows that he is not going to be on the scene long. and As a matter of fact, the entire apostolate, all of the apostles, will soon be off the scene And it is his great concern that the church be well-ordered 
in order that faithful men will preach the gospel and others assist in that preaching so that the truth may be passed down from generation to generation, even to this church, until Christ comes again. That's his great concern. We've seen in the prior passage the qualifications for elders. We see in this passage the qualifications for deacons in the church. Qualified deacons. Now someone may say, this is just housekeeping. Why take a Sunday morning for it? It is God's word. It needs to be explained. It needs to be proclaimed. It needs to be preached. We need to be taught. And yes, it's housekeeping, but you see, it's God's house. And you are the members of God's household. And you and I will not know how God's household is to be ordered if we do not expound texts such as these. Order in the church is established by the Lord Jesus Christ. And we set aside order in the church at our peril. You remember what B.M. Palmer said? Laxity in doctrine is always sure to accompany contempt for discipline and order. If we show contempt for discipline and order in the church, it will show in doctrinal laxity, and then we will not be passing down to generations to come the truth as it is in Jesus. To put it another way, the same Jesus that died for you on the cross and shed his blood to redeem you from your guilt and to take away your sins is the same Christ who gives this passage by divine inspiration and says, I love you. And I'm showing my love. The same Christ who died for you and showed his immense eternal love for you shows his love for you now and telling you about order in the church. So we come to these qualifications of deacons. But before, I think we should think for a few moments upon the nature of the diaconal office as we found it in the sixth chapter of the book of Acts. In that passage, we read that there was a sensitive problem that arose in the early church. Numbers increased as people came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and there was great tension between two parties in the church. The Greek widows were neglected or appeared to be neglected. Widows of alien birth, those who were not, uh, who were not from Jerusalem, uh, who had uh, a background outside of Palestine or outside of Jerusalem, those widows were suffering in the distribution of the food and to the needs of the widows. And so you see, there was a division on the horizon. If this isn't dealt with, there's going to be a division in the church. What the apostles did not do is very instructive. The apostles did not say, well, this is such a great issue and it's going to bring division in the church. What we need to do is to set aside for the time being our emphasis on prayer and the preaching of the word. And we need to wait on tables and deal with this ourselves. They didn't do that at all. What they did was to say, it is not right for us to wait on tables. Now, this was not pride. This was utter humility. God has not called us to that. He has called us to the ministry of the Word, and we must, we must give our focus and our attention upon the ministry of the Word of God. And so this needs to be handled in a different way. What happened? They carefully chose seven men, all of them with Greek names, you notice, to minister to these women of Greek origin. That is to say, outside of Palestine. These men took the burden, thus freeing the apostles to focus on prayer and the proclamation of the Word of God. How then does this relate to the passage that we see in the pastoral epistles in 1 Timothy 3? Well, 
The Apostle Paul is passing down to faithful men the good deposit. Men such as Timothy will be called to proclaim the word of God. Ruling elders will shepherd and maintain order. Deacons, then, are men who are called to do all within their, their power to keep the teaching and ruling elders' plates clear so that ministers may focus on preaching and teaching and the ruling elders on the shepherding of the flock of God purchased with Christ's own blood. What a high calling the deacon has. What is a deacon? A deacon is a man called by God who has a passion for taking care of all of those many tasks necessary to the life of the church so that the ministers can be free to preach and teach and the elders free to rule, to administer discipline, and to shepherd the flock of God. If you think of a deacon as someone who takes care of the temperature in the room, who is sure that the lights are, are, are functioning, uh, if you think of a deacon as someone who ministers mercy, you're right about that and much more. Because the deacon is a man who will ask himself the question, what can I do to lighten the pastor's load? What can I do to help him maintain his focus on preaching? What can I do to lighten the load of the ruling elders so that the elders of the church may shepherd the flock of God purchased with Christ's own blood? What must I do to support them? What may we do to help maintain, to maintain an ethos of peace in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? And so to have deacons in the church is important, it is essential, and we cannot afford to be without men such as these in our body. Well, I hope you see that to have deacons in the church is something essential, something necessary for the well-being of our congregation, and it is a very important calling indeed. If indeed it is such a high calling, then it is necessary that these men be qualified for that office of deacon. And we're not left in the dark about what the qualifications for deacons should be. We find it right here in the third chapter of 1 Timothy. So look at it with me. First of all, as we look at the qualifications of deacons, we find that the qualifications relate to character. Verse 8, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. The deacon must be dignified. Simnus, it's a word that means to be serious-minded. If you go to one of the great uh, lexicons of New Testament Greek, you read there, worthy of respect and honor, noble, dignified, serious. You also read, evoking special respect. And so the deacon is to be a man, as we have seen already in the book of Acts, filled with the Holy Spirit, wise men who are dignified, who are worthy of respect. As you look in the congregation for men who are to fulfill this office, one of the things you should say, is he a dignified man? Is he serious in life? Is he serious about the faith? But also we read in verse 8 that he is not only to be dignified, but not double-tongued, not double-tongued. The deacon is constantly with people. His call is to promote peace, not to tear it down. One commentator writes, persons who spread conflicting tales among the congregation are not to be selected as deacons. 
since the ministrations of such an officer would conceivably take him on constant rounds of visitation, a double-tongued person would spread havoc in short order. This officer must know how to bridle his tongue. But not only must he know how to bridle his tongue, he must also know how to speak the truth, and he must know how to say things in such a way that promote the purity and the peace of the church. Now let me say something. As we looked at the moral qualifications of elders and the moral qualifications of deacons, and surely we say this is a high standard indeed, let me me remind you that all of us should have these characteristics, every single one of us. A man shouldn't be an elder that isn't qualified. A man should not be a deacon who is not qualified. But all of us should have these moral qualifications, and we should be growing, growing, growing in our understanding of these things in our own lives. Take, for example, not double-tongued. Keep your finger here and turn to the book of James, and let's read together what, by divine inspiration, we read about the tongue in the third chapter of James. Just beginning in verse 1 of chapter 3 of James. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, also able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, sustaining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs, neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. And so the Word of God teaches not only that the deacons should not be double-tongued, but it calls you and me and all of us who are here today to speak the truth and to have voices and language and speech that actually edifies and builds up rather than tears down, whether it be in the home or in the church or wherever we may be. Well, back to this passage in verse 8 of chapter 3. We've seen that the moral qualification of the deacon is that he is to be dignified and that he is not to be double-tongued. But it also says in verse 8 that he is not to be addicted to much wine. So the deacon must be a man who is filled with the Holy Spirit and not to substances that cloud his judgment and would bring him into bondage and ruin He must not be addicted to much wine. 
Now remember in those days that wine mingled with water was the chief drink in the ancient world. You wouldn't just drink water, but you would drink wine usually with some water mingled with it. It could be a very easy thing for someone to slip over into drunkenness. The deacon must not be that kind of person. But also it says, as far as his moral qualifications are concerned, that he is not to be greedy for dishonest gain. Why does it underscore this about the deacons? Well, because the deacons then and now distribute alms. They handle money. They handle it very directly. They help the poor. And so they must be thoroughly honest men, unlike Judas Iscariot, who carried the purse and stole money. So the moral qualifications are clear. The deacon must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, and not greedy for dishonest gain. But then we also see that they must be spiritually-minded men, spiritually-minded men, and we find that in verse 9. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. They must be spiritually-minded. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. The mystery once hidden, now revealed in the Holy Scriptures, the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of its fullness, God's purpose and plan of redemption. The deacon is to know this and to employ it in a pure life so that in his daily routine he has a clear conscience before God and man. It is wrong to think that the elders alone should be spiritually minded men and that it doesn't matter about the deacon. It is wrong for us to think that the elders alone should be doctrinally minded men, but that it doesn't matter if the deacon is a doctrinally minded man. How will the deacon promote the purity and peace of the church along with the elders if they also do not know our confessional standards, if they also do not love God's word, if they also do not live out of the fullness of the gospel? If they do not know these things themselves, not only intellectually but experientially, how can the deacon fulfill his calling? And that's one of the reasons that the text goes on to say that they are to be experienced men in verse 10. And let them also be tested first, then let them, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. They must be experienced men. We need to be able to see that the man who is about to take this office and to serve in the church has a blameless life. Now, that doesn't mean that he's sinless. But it means that as you look at his life, you see these moral qualifications that we have seen, and you see the Holy Spirit working in his life in this exemplary fashion. He lives a blameless life. He must be an experienced man before hands are laid upon him in ordination. The text says they must prove themselves. Now, I've known congregations who believe that the way to get men involved in the life of the church is to ordain them to office. And so men are sometimes quickly ordained as teaching elders, sometimes quickly ordained as ruling elders, and I think it's much more common, more quickly ordained to be deacons. That flatly contradicts the Word of God. Because look at the text again, verse 10, let them also be tested first. A word that's sometimes used of testing metals to see if the if, if, the, if the, the, there, there's a mix in the gold, to see if it's true, if it's pure. Let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. So there has to be a time of testing. A man should not rush into the office, and the church should not rush to bring a man into this office. 
But then, of course, just as with the elder, there are domestic requirements. And the domestic requirements are very interesting to see because the first domestic requirement that we find here is that the deacon is to have a qualified wife. Deacon's wives who are here today. But all of us, because these things should be true of all of us, but especially deacon's wives who are here today. Verse 11, their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Now, I am fully aware that there are a variety of interpretations of verse 11. There are those who think that uh, that uh, what we find here in our ESV is correct, that it means wives. There are others who think that it means assistance to the deacons. There are others who believe that uh, it's addressing deaconesses in the church. And it would take an entirely separate sermon to really work that out thoroughly, but let me try and cut to the chase. The word that is used here in verse 11 that is translated wives is the word for women, but also can mean wives. And so we have to ask ourselves in the context, which does it mean? Does it mean women? Does it mean wives? Some think, of course, as I've said, that it means that the office of deacon is open for women. We've already dealt with that as regards the elder, that no teaching or ruling elder, uh, that the office is not open to women. Paul says in chapter 2, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, rather she is to remain quiet. And then he roots it as we saw in verse 13 of chapter 2, in creation, not in culture. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So this rush of the church to ordain women to be teaching and ruling elders simply is not biblical. But we have a different question here. What about deacons? What about deaconesses? Well, I see nothing in the scriptures to indicate that women should be ordained to the office of deacon. Someone says, well, what about Phoebe in Romans 16, who is described as a deaconess? The word diakonia simply means servant. There's no indication there, one way or another, if it refers to servanthood or if it refers to office. But when we go to Acts chapter 6, I think we're given some very interesting and clear instruction because that passage we read this morning, seven men were ordained to minister to women's needs. Did you notice it? If ever there was a circumstance in which you would expect that deaconesses would have been ordained, then it would have been in the book of Acts chapter 6 when the the Greek widows thought themselves to be neglected. Uh, But the text is so specific that it says seven men, not using the word anthropos, which can mean mankind, men or women, but it uses the word aner, which means a male. Choose seven males to minister to the Greek women, these widows. Now, what about 1 Timothy 3? Now, here in 1 Timothy 3, as we come to verse 11, I think we need to remember that deacons must be the husband of one wife is what follows. So it says, look at these verses. Verse 11, their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. So deacons must be the husband of one wife. And before this, women are not designated deacons in this passage. So I wonder if you see the flow. 
Paul speaks of deacons in verses 8 through 10, actually using the term deacon. Then females in verse 11, whether it means wife or female, females are addressed in verse 11, returning to the title deacon in verse 12. The term likewise puts women in a different category. Their wives likewise must be dignified. So verse 11 is an intrusion into the discussion of deacons because he sees these women mentioned here as an expansion of the comment that he is about to make that deacons are to be the husband of one wife. So I think this is what Paul is saying in this passage. Paul is saying, here are your qualifications, deacons, your moral qualifications. And oh, also, your wives may often be so involved in your visits and calls to other women that they, as well as you, must be dignified, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. If you ask me the question, why does it signify the wives of deacons and it doesn't mention the wives of elders, it's not because the wives of elders can be unconcerned about dignity and the use of their tongue and sobriety and faithfulness in all things, but it's because there's a difference in office and there will be a difference in the involvement of the wives in that office. The elder is most often involved in situations that wives shouldn't even know about. Most of the shepherding issues that elders are involved in, discipline matters and so forth, the wives should not know any of the details. It's not true of deacons, who will often be ministering to women, most of us will know, who have physical needs, and it will be according to propriety that the deacon involve his wife in the meeting of that need. So I think that the ESV is correctly translated here when it speaks of the wives, meaning the wives of deacons. And what does it say to you, ladies? You should be dignified. You should not be slanderous. You need to be careful about your speech. You need to be sober. And probably the word here is comprehensive, using the, speaking of the use of alcohol, as well as your judgment. Your judgment must be sober and faithful in all things, so that you're faithful to your husband, you're faithful to your family, you're faithful in your calling as a church member, you're faithful in rearing your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Then he adds, as we speak of domestic qualifications, in verse 12, you are to be the husband of one wife, deacon. What he's already said to the elder, that is, this woman who is your helper, you must be faithful to her. Faithful to her. One commentator says, the home is the proving ground for officers. So congregation, as you select deacons... There are qualifications. They're very clear. We set them aside at our peril. But don't forget to inspect graciously. There are no perfect men, no perfect wives, no perfect families. Don't forget to inspect graciously the home life of the prospective deacon. 
Does he love his wife? Is he faithful in managing his household well, the way in which he rears his children? Because the home is the proving ground for officers. Now along with these personal qualifications, the Apostle Paul now gives encouragement for deacons. And this is the third thing we see, encouragement for deacons. Deacons who serve well receive two encouragements. It's found in verse 13. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So two things. The deacon who serves well receives a good standing. He obtains a good standing. The deacon, having done his best, honoring God among his people, will be honored by God's people, and that is as it should be. And then the deacon must make use of that honorable position to further the the kingdom of God and the ways of the Lord in the congregation. But also, it says, that he will have great confidence in the faith. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. The word means boldness. It means assurance. Such as Stephen, the deacon, had when he was stoned to death and witnessed a good confession before his murderers. It means that the deacon is a man who is to be bold in the truth, who is to be a real prayer warrior, bold in prayer, who is to be bold in his witness for Christ. Our deacons should be among, listen to this, our deacons should be among our most spiritually minded men who are confident in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, every time I read these passages in which I examine my own life in terms of the qualifications of elders and then go on and say, see what Paul says, particularly to teachers and preachers, And of course, as you deacons sit here this morning and you hear these qualifications, you say, who is sufficient for these things? And right, you should. But allow these things to plow the heart in order that the gospel of Christ might take hold even more deeply because our sufficiency is totally in the Lord. Now, this matter of officers, fourthly, this matter of officers, why is it important? The Apostle Paul has told us the qualifications of elders, the qualifications now of deacons, as we have seen this morning. Why is it important? Well, he tells us three reasons in verses 14 and 15. Let's look at these verses. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. First of all, he says, this matter of officers is important, first of all, because Paul couldn't be there personally to order the church. And so he's writing, and it's important that Timothy take what is written and apply it to the church. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. That's the second thing. Paul is telling the church, that's us how we should conduct ourselves in the household of God, the household of faith. And if we don't preach these sections, how will we know? If we never examine them, how will we know how to conduct ourselves? How will we know how the church is to be ordered? How will we know how the church is to be structured? 
And when he speaks of God's house, don't think of brick and mortar. As important as that may be, he's talking about you, the members of the church, of the Lord Jesus Christ. That God dwells by his spirit in you. That he dwells in us. And that should bring about certain conduct because we are members of God's household. Let me tell you, in my dad's household, it brought about a certain conduct that he was my father. And there was the devil to pay if I didn't. Figuratively. Our Heavenly Father who loves us expects His children to conduct themselves in a certain way in His household. Keep this passage before you, but turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, as the Apostle Paul is discussing, discussing the division that has come about uh, over those who follow one personality or another personality. In chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, he says this, to all of the members of the church, 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. And then he tells us, that the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. We're translated here at the end of verse 15, the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. In a world of unbelief, when people all around us do not know what to believe, he has given to his church his truth, his word. And we are a pillar and buttress of the truth. Pillars in the ancient world... You would plaster on pillars announcements. We are the pillar. He has plastered on us the announcement of the good news of the gospel in this world. George Knight says in his wonderful commentary, to remind the church that it is a structure called to uphold the truth of Christianity is also to remind it that it is a household called to manifest that truth in its conduct and to conform to it. So being a member of the church means that our hearts are conformed to his word, which in turn brings certain conduct that can be seen by the world. You college students that are here, we're always delighted when our college students can be home. When you go off to college, you are a member of Jesus Christ. You are in union with him. You are purchased with his blood. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. But you are also a member of the church universal and of this local body. So when you go off to that college campus and your parents aren't there anymore, you are representing Christ to that college campus, and you are representing Covenant Presbyterian Church, just as we all are in the lives that we live in this world. And so I ask you, young people, are you living according to truth? Are you living with biblical integrity? 
Do you uphold the exclusivity of the gospel of Jesus Christ with humility before your fellow students, that there's no other person, no other way for salvation? Are you living morally pure lives on that college campus? This isn't when I was in university, but when I was a high school student. God taught me a lesson very, very early in my life. As my my best friend, who had actually been involved in leading me to Christ in an indirect fashion, getting me under the preaching of the gospel, seemed to walk so well, seemed to walk so faithfully. And then, as I began to walk with the Lord, he began to walk away from the Lord. Was he truly saved? Only the Lord knows. Did he come back to the Lord before he died? Only the Lord knows, because two years later he was dead. And there I stood as a 13, 14-year-old boy before my friend's coffin. And it said to me, you don't know when you're going to stand before the Lord God. You're called to live out of the fullness of the gospel to live faithfully. Do you see that, young people? Your life is but a vapor that appears for a little while and vanishes away. And so you're called to live with integrity before the world. Dr. Knight goes on to say, Timothy and the church will conduct their lives appropriately if they remember that they are the home built and owned by God and indwelt by Him as the living one and also remember that they are called on to undergird and hold aloft God's truth in word and deed. That's our calling. That's your calling. So no Christian should go home this morning thinking... What does this text have to do with me? I'm not a deacon or a deacon's wife. What does this text have to do with me? Let me bring two closing thoughts to you. The first is this. Get rid of a low view of the church if you have one, in which your view of the church is take it or leave it, or perhaps even bitter for one reason or another to the church. I will never forget when I was licensed to ministry, Roland Barnes standing over me as I was licensed as a young man and pointing down at me with his big finger saying, David, you must love the church of Christ no matter how spotted or blemished she may be, for she is purchased with Christ's own blood. And I've never forgotten it. Never. And if you have a low view of the church, it's not biblical. We should consider it our highest privilege to be a part of God's household, despite our flaws and failings, to be a part of this local body. The Spirit of God indwells us with His glory. Angels strain to see what Christ is doing among His people in this church. E.K. Simpson rightly says, the church's presence, the very fact that we're here, the church's presence testifies to things unseen as yet, and that's true. The church is the bearer of urgent and best tidings to the world. As Simpson goes on to say, the organized church is set for the defense and maintenance of the faith once for all consigned to the saints in trust. It is a trust. It is a sacred trust. This word that is committed to you is a sacred trust. For you and for me to believe 
for us to uphold, for us to teach to our children, for us to pass to generations to come, and we are not left in the dark as to how to accomplish that, either in our personal lives or in ordering the church of which we are members. So will you leave here thrilled that in its organization, in its worship, in its work, that you people saved by Christ's own blood are a part of the glorious body of Christ. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, in which Peter makes this very point. He speaks of our privilege, our call to take the gospel to the world, and he speaks of how we are to live because we are a part of the church. What a great commentary on 1 Timothy 3 when we read in 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So, he says to us, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's your purpose in the world. You don't have to question why are you here. And then he goes on in verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. We are to do battle. And I will tell you, as I look at what the Bible teaches and I look at my own life and I look toward the coming of Christ or my death, I see nothing but war ahead. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, that is to say, those outside of the church. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation, the day when Jesus comes again. That's your calling as a member of the church. And it will not allow... It will not permit a low view of the church in its visible form, where there are teaching elders, ruling elders, deacons, and organized body of believers. It will not permit a low view of the church. And so if that is you, don't turn this aside, but believe and repent. And then secondly, have you ever stopped to consider this? That all of the offices of the church, think of the offices that have prevailed in the church through the centuries. In the Old Testament, prophet, priest, king. In the New Testament, pastor, teacher, ruling elder, deacon. That all of the offices in the church are preeminently held by the Lord Jesus Christ. 
all of the offices in the church are summed up in and held consummately in Christ himself. And so, he is that prophet who speaks his word. He is that priest who died for our sins. He is that king who rules and reigns over us, defends us, and defeats his and our enemies. He is now the great pastor-teacher of his church. He is ultimately the one who rules and reigns as the ruling elder over his church. And he is the great deacon, the great servant, who took a towel and washed his disciples' feet, and who went to a cross, and who said, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Deacons, do you want to know the pattern of diaconal service in the church? This is it. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Oh, think how he came as the great deacon. As our great priest, as he went to the cross, he was also the great deacon serving us, his people, shedding his blood, purchasing you from your awful sins, removing the guilt that would have sunk you and me down into hell, bearing the wrath of God in our place, standing as our substitute as he died upon the tree. But my unbelieving friend who may be here today, when Jesus returns, he will not return as a deacon, holding out mercy to those who have rejected him. When he comes back, he comes back solely as king, whose mercy has been spurned. And our opinions won't matter. Our opinions are no good on this who you think God ought to be, what you think Christ ought to do, that you think he should let your sin slide, it just doesn't matter. Your opinion won't matter at all. Because the great deacon will not come with mercy, but he will come with judgment. And so I call upon you by the grace of God to lay down the weapons of your warfare against this great king, who now stands before you with wide open arms, with mercy, and bow before this king while he comes in deacon's garb, before he comes in the garb of an infinite judge. This deacon who amazingly came to serve the people he loves will come again in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel. And so come. No works of your own, come by faith. And own Him as your Lord. And God's people said, Amen.